Now call our second case, number 212620 versus Gaines. Do we have um, we have all council present here? I believe so. Yes, we do. Looks like we do. Okay. Um Bessman, you may begin when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. We name me Bestman for the appellant, Rita Fox. The sole issue before this court today is whether the Fair Housing Act prohibits sexual harassment as a form of sex-based discrimination. The district court answered this question in the negative. It appreciated that its ruling was in direct contrast with the overwhelming weight of federal authority, in direct contrast with the fellow district courts within this circuit, and the US Department of Housing and Urban Development regulations. The sole basis of the court's ruling was a lack of binding authority from the 11th Circuit. Today, we ask this panel to reverse the district court and hold that Title VIII prohibits sexual harassment as a form of sex-based discrimination. Uh, in my brief time, I have three points that I would like to address for the court, uh, the plain language of Title VIII, whether Ms. Fox sex was a but-for cause of Dana's harassment, and uh, did the Second Amendment complaint uh, plead unwelcome sexual harassment? Ms. Ms. Bestman, can I ask you just a quick factual question before you get going? Uh, is, was there in this case ever a, a like a formal eviction? Um, the analogy, or the, uh, the analogy, I suppose, to a, a Title VII, um, uh, you know, sort of adverse employment action. Was there something formal that? Um, you know, that the landlord did to your client or was it, it was it really was the discrimination, the sort of the um, sort of the sum total of the discrimination, not to minimize it, the, the harassment itself. Yes, Your Honor, and there was a formal eviction. Uh, Mr. Gaines served her with a three day notice for um, failure to pay rent, which in fact she had paid rent in full for the month of April. And there was an eviction filed with the court. So the reason the reason I ask is this: it, um, if there was an eviction, some sort of formal action taken against your client, is it necessary for us in this case to even address the sexual harassment issue, or can we just go straight to the question of whether there was in fact discrimination because of sex? The discrimination being here an eviction that would not have occurred but for this individual's sex. Can we just sort of bypass the whole sexual harassment thing? I'm just wondering if that question is squarely presented. And it may well be, this only came to me this morning, so it may be a half-baked thought, but I just wondered if there is in fact a formal eviction, if we even really need to get into the sexual harassment thing. Yes, Your Honor, because the eviction is because of the sexual harassment. But for uh, Miss Fox sex being a female, she would not have even been a victim of Mr. Gaines' sexual advances, which would not have led to her being evicted. Dana retaliating against her to evict her. So the eviction itself, the formal eviction is a offspring coming out of the sexual harassment. Okay, very well. And so when looking at the plain language of Title VIII, it is important to note that neither Title VIII nor Title VII mentions sexual harassment. Nevertheless, when it comes to Title VII, this court in Mendoza versus Borden, in an en banc opinion, opined that Title VII's prohibition of sex clearly includes sexual harassment, that the U.S. Supreme Court and this court have long recognized that the phrase 
terms, conditions, or privileges of employment invents a congressional intent to strike at the entire spectrum of disparate treatment between men and women in employment, which also includes requiring people to work in a discriminatory, hostile, or abusive environment. Courts have long uh, looked at Title VIII and Title VII and given them light construction. So therefore, the same ruling is appropriate in this context. As whether Ms. Fox sex was a but-for cause of Dana's discriminatory uh, behavior, despite the district court's ruling on page six of its order that no allegations were anywhere in the Second Amendment complaint that Fox was retaliated against because of her sex, this was air in page uh, paragraph 16 and 64 of the second amendment complaint. Fox alleged that because of her sex, she was retaliated against. That but for her uh, stopping to acquiesce to the sexual advances, she would not have been retaliated against and she would not have been evicted. In applying the 11th Circuit's holding in Henson versus City of Dundee to this case, says to establish that harm alleged was based on sex, Fox must show that but for her sex, she would not have been the object of Dana's harassment. The uh, Housing Umbrella Group, as Amicus Curie wrote in Lynn Palace, this court stated that when a person sexually harasses another, the court infers that the harasser is making advancements against that victim because that victim is the sex that he or she prefers. In this case, Dana from day one asked Ms. Gaines, I'm sorry, Ms. Fox for a kiss, that he will reserve the apartment. He's married to a woman. We know that the female gender is what Mr. Gaines prefers. And but for Ms. Fox sex as a female, she would never have been uh, the object of Dana harassment and sexual advances. Can I, quick, can I ask you a quick question just about the operation of this? And I'm sorry, this is so indelicate. Um, but so, so in light of your argument here and in light of the Ancali case in the Supreme Court about same-sex sexual harassment, um, where the, the, the sex of the victim still has to be a but-for cause of the harassment itself, what about a situation in which the harasser is bisexual um, and thus doesn't sort of have a determined um, sexual preference? Does that mean that that person just gets off scot-free? Sorry, I know this is indelicate, but I just wonder about sort of how the but-for um, test would apply in that scenario. No, Your Honor, that person would not get off scot-free because you're looking at the, the person who's being harassed. Are they being harassed because of their sex? So if the harasser is bisexual um, and they would sexually harass a male or sexually harass a female, if the sole basis of that harassment is that person's sex, they will still be liable uh, under the uh, Fair Housing Act. And getting to uh, welcomeness, the, we believe the most factually similar case to this and uh, that is instructive is Meritor Savings Bank. In that case, a bank employee for four years was sexually harassed by her employer and was terminated. The Supreme Court held that the gravamen of any sexual harassment claim is whether the sexual advances were unwelcome. We pled that in uh, paragraph 64 of our complaint. I see that my time is up. If no further questions, I yield to uh, Mr. Lee. Thank you, Ms. Bestman. Mr. Lee? 
Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Jason Lee on behalf of the United States. This court should vacate the district court's order and remand for further proceedings. In the order, the district court appeared to agree that Ms. Fox was subjected to sexual harassment, but nonetheless held that sexual harassment does not violate the Fair Housing Act. That conclusion conflicts with the plain text of the statute and is, is inconsistent with the conclusion reached by every other federal appellate court to have considered the issue. Whereas here, a plaintiff alleges that a property manager conditioned certain rental terms on her performance of sexual favors and then retaliates by trying to evict her when she refuses to participate in such an arrangement, that plaintiff has stated cognizable sex discrimination and states a claim under the Fair Housing Act. I'd like to start by talking about the broader implications of the district court's ruling and to answer your question, Judge Newsom, yes, that issue is squarely presented by the court and is absolutely necessary for the court to address. Uh, we know that issue is squarely presented whether or not the Fair Housing Act bars sexual harassment because of the analysis the court did of other courts that have held that sexual harassment does violate this, the Fair Housing Act. I guess the reason I asked the question, and again, um, the thought came to me in the gym this morning, so take it for what it's worth. Um, but it, it just dawned on me that in the, in the normal sexual harassment case, and I went back and looked at Meritor, it seems like the reason that sexual harassment has been sort of deemed discrimination within, say, the, the, the context of Title VII is because there's not some formal adverse employment action like a firing or a discipline but nonetheless we have concluded correctly that um you know that that the environment can be made so intolerable by the harassment that an employee might be feel uh, might feel like she has no option but to leave and so i guess that's the reason i was wondering was here there was there a formal eviction or was it just that her life was made so miserable by this guy uh, that she felt like she had to give in and, leave and vacate the, the apartment. I have two responses, Your Honor. First, a formal eviction is not required. Section 3604B um, simply bars uh, less favorable treatment on the basis of sex, and Section 3617 uh, prohibits interference with Fair Housing Act. There's no need for any actual violation of the Fair Housing Act rights. Second, the reason why this is, this is necessary for the court to address is because regardless of whether or not um, the court concludes that Ms. Fox states a claim under the Fair Housing Act. The really troubling and problematic aspect of the district court's ruling is that it would bar relief, not just in close cases, but in obvious, egregious cases of sexual harassment. Cases where everyone involved agrees that the plaintiff has suffered sexual harassment, and under the district court's interpretation of the statute, that plaintiff would be left without relief. For example, imagine a property manager that goes to a female tenant and says, I find you very attractive. I would like to have sex with you. And if you refuse my, if you refuse my advances, I will triple your rent. I will cut off your heat. I will cut off your electricity and I will cut off your water. Under the district court's interpretation of the Fair Housing Act, regardless of how egregious the facts are, how egregious the harassment is, there would simply be no claim under the Fair Housing Act. And that cannot be the case. In fact, we know that's not the case because sexual harassment falls under the plain text of the statute. The Fair Housing Act bars discrimination in the terms, privileges, and conditions of rental based on sex. Here, sexual harassment, the harassment itself, conditioning sexual favors on, or conditioning rental benefits on per the performance of sexual favors, that's the unfavorable treatment. That's the discrimination. And the Mr. portion- Lee, Mr. Lee, let me go back to Judge Newsom's question, and I apologize to Judge Newsom if I'm not getting at 
what he was trying to get at. But I thought what he was asking is, let's suppose we agree that there was a quid pro quo and that was discrimination. Could we simply reverse on that ground and not reach the sexual harassment claim? And if not, why not? No, the legal basis of the, of the district court's ruling is that sexual harassment itself, including quid pro quo sexual harassment, um, does not violate the Fair Housing Act. I think it's very telling that the district court did not hold in some circumstances, sexual harassment might violate the statute, but Ms. Fox simply was not subject to sexual harassment as pled. That's not what the district court held. The district court in instead seemed to accept, yes, she was subject to sec uh, sexual harassment. I believe on pages one crossing over to page two, the district court describes the arrangement as a quid pro quo sexual, sexual relationship. So recognizing she was subject to sexual harassment, but simply holds uh, on page five or six, I can't remember which, that's, that type of conduct is simply not actionable. So for that reason, in addition, the, the, that legal conclusion regarding sexual harassment and whether or not it violates the statute was all the, also the legal basis on which the district court dismissed Fox's claims under 3604C and 3617. So that is the legal issue squarely presented before the court. Um, and every source that the court would look at in terms of construing statutory text weighs in favor of finding that sexual harassment does violate the statute. I just explained the textual, um, under a plain analysis of the text of the statute, sexual harassment is covered. Um, the unanimous conclusion of other federal appellate courts that have considered the issue finds that sexual harassment violates the statute. Um, it's, that, that interpretation is consistent with the decades-long interpretation of analogous, identical statutory me, Mr. Title VII. Let me ask you another question before you sit down. As I understand the government's position, it's that the statute is unambiguous, and therefore we would not afford Chevron deference to the HUD regulation. Is that right? That's correct. There's no need to consider Chevron deference because this, the, ta the text is unambiguous, but we would say to the extent the court um, disagrees, uh, we would refer to the um, longstanding interpretation of the Fair Housing Act by HUD, uh, which is entitled to great weight under the Supreme Court's decision in Traficante. So for whatever pervasive, per persuasive um, skidboard deference it would be entitled to. If there are any other questions, um, I'm happy to entertain them. Um, otherwise, we would urge the, um, the court to vacate the district court's order. Thank you, Mr. Lee. Mr. Brookmeyer. May it please the court, I represent Dana Gaines and Lucille Gaines. Now, let me start out by saying that there's an, an unusual fundamental difference of opinion in this case as to what the issue is. And by that, I mean to say, the district court didn't have to deal with the issue per se of whether sexual harassment falls under the FHA or not. The issue on this appeal is really, did the district court make an error in dismissing the second amended complaint for failure to state a cause of action and finding that it was impossible for Ms. Fox to state a cause of action? And that oh, hasn't didn't, been- didn't he, um... Didn't he conclude effectively that as a matter of sort of factual allegations, she had made out um, a sexual harassment claim? And then so the reason for him saying no, uh, no claim, no, you know, failed to state a claim is because he said, I get it. I'm on a, out on a limb here all by myself, but sexual harassment isn't actionable. No, I, I disagree. I think when he was talking about the severity and pervasiveness of whether the allegations were sufficient, he found against my position on that. But in particular, if you look at page six of the court's order, he specifically states 
that he finds this, the allegations don't establish discrimination based on sex. He very clearly says that. So what the court said was that it was finding that the fundamental predicate of discrimination because of sex was lacking. And he did that for two reasons, I think, and they were very well founded. Um, if you look at the allegations of the complaint from the day that Ms. Fox moved in until March 30, when she stopped the relationship, she was engaged in a consensual relationship with Dana Gaines. There really can't be no question about that, nor was the trial court confused about that. One simply would look at the exhibits attached to the complaint, and you can clearly see that for a four-year period, Ms. Fox was not the victim of an unwelcome advance by Mr. Gaines, but she was a willing participant in the relationship. Let me ask you this, Mr. Bookmeyer. Do you, do you even dispute, I suppose, that sexual harassment is actionable within the meaning of the Fair Housing Act? You know, that's the question that opposing counsel wants answered. I, I well, think I'm asking that, you, what's your position as you sit here today? I think that there's a slight difference between harassment and discrimination. I think that if the harassment rises to a particular level and it's based on one of the um, protected statuses, that it could conceivably fall into the category of discrimination. And I think there are cases that talk about sexual harassment being sex discrimination if the animus is sex. Okay, so then, I mean, clearly the district court disagreed with what you just said. The district court said, you know, I find as a matter of law that sexual harassment is not cognizable, not actionable within the meaning of the Fair Housing Act. And that was a major premise of his conclusion. Why wouldn't we just correct that misimpression and send it back to him? You might well win uh, on, well, on remand, but, but why wouldn't we just correct the misimpression and let him do it under the right standard? Well, I, with all due respect, I disagree with that premise um, because I think that the fundamental predicate for the court's ruling was not on that basis. And I think a lot of what the court said about that was just dicta. If you look at page six, um, I'm sorry, page nine of the court order, the judge read, uh, rather wrote, but reading Fox's allegations as, liter as liberally as possible, she has not and she cannot allege that Dana's behavior constituted discrimination against her on the basis of sex. And I think the judge said that because for the first four years of the relationship, it was cons consensual and it was welcome advancements. And if you look very carefully at the second amended complaint after they had their falling out, paragraph 62 and 63 of the second amended complaint, the plaintiff herself admits and alleges, quote, Ms. Fox would not have been subjected to this hostile environment if she never ended the relationship with defendant Gaines. Paragraph 63, the same thing, but for Ms. Fox ending the relationship. And I think what the court was saying that after March 30, any retaliation as alleged by Ms. Fox, according to her own admissions, wasn't because of her sex, it was because the relationship ended. And in my brief, I cite to a case from the 11th Circuit, Joseph Sucker, S-U-C-C-A-R, 
versus the Dade County School Board, very similar facts. And there's a finding of no discrimination. The other thing that I think is particularly telling is that if you look at the complaint, there, no, there are no ultimate factual allegations that after March 30, there was anything said or done by Mr. Uh, Gaines to indicate that if Ms. Fox had sex with him, he was willing to not evict her. And given the fact that on April 14th, Ms. Fox had gone to Mr. Gaines's wife and told her about their illicit adulterous relationship for the last four years, you can understand in part, at, at least from that point forward, why Mr. Gaines would want her evicted and gone. Now you've asked a couple of questions, Judge Newsom, about the eviction. And the answers are found in paragraphs 52 and 53 of the second amended complaint. In paragraph 52, Ms. Fox states that she entered into an agreement that she would terminate her lease. In so yeah, so I, I get that. I'm not really sure that it uh, helps you. It, to me, it just, it just frames the issue. If there was a formal eviction, I was wondering aloud whether or not we needed to go down the sexual harassment road or instead whether we could go straight to what is the uh, sort of analog to an adverse employment action, like a tangible action that your client took against her? If in fact there was no formal eviction, then I just think we're back in sexual harassment land because your client made her so miserable that she felt compelled to enter into this so-called voluntary agreement to vacate the premises. Well, bear in mind again, for the last, for the first four years of what the plaintiff claims was sexual harassment, she was willingly engaged in a, in, a, in a relationship with him that was not unwelcome and which was not discriminatory. She did it willingly and her, and her exhibits to the complaint are clear and unequivocal in point of fact, Judge. Her March 30, I think it's 2018, <clears throat> excuse me, a text with Mr. Gaines says, even then, something about when you're serious, come back to me. Even at that point, she was interested in having a relationship with him and was telling him that as long as he was serious about it, which I take to mean leaving his wife and going with her. So at that point, I think that's a demarcation point in my mind, because before that, it's all welcome and it's um, consensual. This is why I said in my conversation with you earlier that I think, uh, you know, on remand, you might well win. Uh, but it, I don't think you can read the district court's order and just cast aside his very candid confession that he was going to hold, contrary to the great weight of authority, that sexual harassment is not actionable under Fair Housing Act. I don't think we can just sort of whistle past that graveyard. He said it. He meant it. And so why not just correct that, send it back? And again, you may win sort of when the rubber meets the road. Because I think, in my opinion, what the judge said was really dicta, because at the end of the day, his determination that the discrimination, if it, if it existed, was not based on sex, vitiates any arguments about whether sexual harassment was or wasn't. And as an example, if the trial court found that sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination under the FHA, 
but the animus for the conduct was not sex, then there's no claim under the FHA. And given the fact that the trial court found that the animus behind the conduct was not based on sex, then I think that the, that the courts addressing the, the NOAA decision and sexual harassment constitutes dicta, it's not particularly relevant to the- Let me go court. back to counsel. The, the problem that I'm having with your argument is the basic premise about what the district court actually did hold. You suggest that the district court's statement that sexual harassment, uh, whether it be pervasive or quid pro quo, does not state a claim under the FHA. I read the district court to say the following. On page four, he makes it abundantly clear that he's rejecting your argument that the allegations were not sufficient to reach the elevated level of harassment required in this 11th circuit. He writes, Dana argues facts has not pled sufficient allegations to reach the elevated level of harassment required in the 11th circuit. That is to say, he argues Fox complaint does not allege pervasive sexual harassment or more specifically quote, a pattern of harassment. He relies principally on two out of circuit cases. The court disagrees as a factual matter, Fox's allegations are pled well beyond what is required to withstand a motion to dismiss. She has sufficiently pled that once she ended the sexual relationship, the defendant started serving her with fraudulent notices for non-payment of rent and threats of eviction, among, among other things, ultimately terminating her lease. The court cannot imagine what more she would need to plead to withstand the motion to dismiss. What he goes on to say in the pivotal language on page six, even under our society's expanding understanding of the term sex, citing to the recent Supreme Court case in Bostock, there is no reasonable discernible way of understanding it as it, we're talking about the coverage in the statute as including retaliation for ending a physical sexual relationship whether it be our traditional understanding, male or female sexual orientation or sexual identity, the allegations that the defendant reiterated against Fox because she no longer wanted to engage in a sexual relationship is not an allegation of discrimination on the basis of sex. There are no allegations anywhere in the second amended complaint that Dana's retaliation on against Fox was because she was a female or because of her sexual orientation or because of her sexual identity. The allegations are clear. He retaliated because she ended the sexual relationship with him. I do not know how to read this as anything other than the district court flatly holding that a claim for sexual harassment or quid pro quo claim does not state a claim under the FHA. Seems to me that's what he said. Either that's right or that's wrong, but I don't know how we can avoid meeting that head on and addressing it. 
What have I missed about the district court's reasoning here? Well, I read the district court's opinion as saying, as you've read it, I interpret it a bit differently, that she ended the sexual relationship. That's why he sued her, that they had an interpersonal relationship that ended. Acrimony normally follows that kind of an event. It followed it in this case. And he wasn't discriminating against her because she's a woman. He was discriminating against her because they had a relationship that deteriorated, much like in the Sucker case from uh, the 11th Circuit. Given the fact that you and Judge Marcus have read the very same passage, the very same opinion to mean very different things, I, I return to my question. Why shouldn't we correct uh, any uh, misimpression that might result from the district court's opinion to suggest that uh, sexual harassment is per se not actionable, send it back, and then he might read, he might say, the 11th Circuit is stocked with a bunch of fools. They misread my opinion. What I meant was that the uh, the relationship ended, acrimony followed, and the uh, eviction or the, the constructive eviction was based on that. Well, only because I think that his opinion, that's what he intended to say right here. And that's what he said, that the re reason for the discrimination was not because she's a woman, it's because the relationship ended badly, just like in soccer, which is pretty much the same case, you know, and two teachers not, uh, two teachers engaging in a consensual relationship, they have a falling out, and then one begins to retaliate against the other. And the 11th Circuit says it's not because of their sex, it's because their relationship ended. And when you look at the complaint, there are no allegations of fact that after their relationship ended, that Dana Gaines in any way, shape, or form communicated that a continuing provision of sexual favors would re result in her being allowed to stay there. Let me ask the question in a slightly different way, if I could, counsel. Assume arguendo that I properly read the district court to hold sexual harassment or quid pro quo sexual harassment cannot state a claim under the FHA. In your view, would that not be legal error? I think that the FHA is clear. I think that if harassment is, is uh, motivated by an animus of sex or another protected status, that it would constitute sex discrimination. So if it, sexual harassment, in my opinion, is no different than any other conduct that's prohibited. If it's motivated on a, because of an animus against or protected status, it falls within the parameters of the FHA. So it sounds to me then like we have raging agreement between you, Mr. Lee, and Ms. Bestman that sexual harassment is actionable under the FHA if it is uh, motivated, but, 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 you know, but for, if the but-for cause of the harassment is sex. Um, and your only quarrel now anymore, this is significantly, I think, shrunk the, the area of dispute. Your only quarrel is that the district court really didn't mean that sexual harassment is per se outside the statute, only that the sexual harassment that occurred here was not um, because of um, the sex of the tenant. Correct. I think the court trial court tried to make it very clear that it was finding that the um, motivation for the conduct was not based on sex or gender. 
It was based on acrimony. And that's not a protected status. And that the allegations of the complaint established it. I think the court relied on that as well. The allegation said it was because of the ending of the relationship. And there were no allegations that after it ended, there was any further um, communication of an intent to provide a quid pro quo for sex. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Again, going back to the district court opinion, what do you suppose the district court meant here when it said on page six, the court appreciates this ruling is in direct contrast with Noah, a case decided by this district not too long ago. The court further appreciates that this ruling is in direct contrast with what Noah said is the overwhelming weight of federal authority, citing 16 circuit and district court decisions supporting that conclusion. I think the judge was addressing, as he did on page four, and as your honor read it earlier, the elevated level required by the 11th circuit, but went on to find, which I think is the underlying predicate for the decision, that sex was not the animus for the conduct involved in this case. So I think, in my opinion, I think the trial court could have not really addressed that particular issue of sexual harassment and simply said, I'm finding that based on the allegations, the exhibits to the complaint, that sex was not the motivating factor for the actions that are being complained of, and therefore there's no cause of action under the FHA. If he found that there was um, the necessary uh, animus based on sex, then I could see the court then having gone into the issue of whether or not the allegations rose to the appropriate level. But to- Does it state a claim under the FHA for a landlord to tell a would-be tenant, I will rent you this apartment if you have sex with me, but if you do not, I will not rent you the apartment. Would that state a claim under the FHA in your view? As you phrased it, I think it would, Your Honor. In this case, where it was not an unwelcome um, approach to her, it would not. And by virtue of the fact she engaged in that four-year relationship and the emails attached or texts attached to the complaint, it wouldn't state a claim under those facts because it wasn't unwelcome at all. Is that the basis of the district court opinion? That it was not unwelcome? That this um, was a consensual relationship and therefore this doesn't fall within the ambit of the FHA? I think that is what the district court found. Okay. In stark words like that, but he does talk about the fact that, um, you know, there's no Dana's behavior. She cannot allege that Dana's behavior constituted discrimination against her on the basis of sex, I think is a recognition by the trial court that that's because they were involved in this relationship. And then, then the court goes on to say, she herself says, this was all because the relationship ended. The actions complained of were because the relationship ended. The actions weren't because um, she, she would not agree to it. She did agree to it. She what to about it. the allegation in this case on the front end of the, the facts as they are laid out in the second amended complaint, whereby the plaintiff asserts that 
he told me he would hold the apartment for me, but only if I gave him a kiss. Right. That constitutes sexual harassment as you see it in the FHA? If it, if it ended there, um, that's the very first allegation that she right. made. Right. When she walked in the door, she liked the apartment. She wanted the apartment. Uh, in many ways, it suited her needs and price. He says, I'll hold it for you, but only if you give me a kiss. If, it, if she rejected that and it ended there, I would agree with your honor. Whether she rejected it or accepted it, my question is whether or not that states a claim under the FHA for sexual harassment and whether that is something that falls within the ambit of because or on account of sex. I think it wouldn't be repetitive and pervasive enough, but it, together with other conduct, it might be. That in of itself, I don't think would be sufficient. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Judge. Thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Brookmeyer. Ms. Eastman, you may make your rebuttal. Thank okay. you, Your Honor. Thank you. It's okay, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Judge Newsom, to your point, uh, you are correct, and, and Judge Marcus, is that the district court below was asking for guidance, that the 11th Circuit has not spoken on this issue despite the overwhelming weight of federal authority, and that if the court was to correct this and state that sexual harassment is actionable to pursuant to the Fair Housing Act, and send it back, and then uh, we can have an opportunity to argue whether the conduct was welcome or unwelcome, which is a determination for the trier of fact and not at the pleading phase of a motion to dismiss. Also to address, going back to your question, uh, Judge Newsom, as to whether was it the eviction um, that triggers the sexual harassment here, uh, really for hostile environment claim, uh, regulations 100.602 states, uh, a hostile environment refers to unwelcome conduct that is sufficiently severe or pervasive as to interfere with uh, the use or enjoyment of a dwelling or the conditions or privileges. It doesn't have to be an actual eviction. In this case- oh, Yeah, yeah. don't misunderstand me. I totally agree with you about that. Um, it, I was just saying like, if there was an eviction, then maybe the cause of action sort of like turns on the eviction. Since there wasn't really an eviction here, I think the cause of action does sound in sexual harassment, a sort of hostile environment that was effectively like a constructive eviction. It's, it's all good. I just wanted to clarify the factual issue. Correct, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, in that regards, the landlord's representative, like Mr. Gaines, should not be permitted to include sex as a condition of housing. Moreover, my client, Ms. Fox, is entitled to be free from sexual harassment in her home. This is what the Fair Housing Act prohibits, and this is what we are asking this panel to hold today. Thank you for your time, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel.